Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion of Land Ministries, and thank you for joining us once again for our Erev Shabbat broadcast here on B'nishalom.tv. A hearty Shabbat Shalom to all of you watching on Facebook Live, our mobile app, or any one of our television apps. We thank you for making us a part of your Sabbath routine. Right now it is October 2nd, and it is the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm sure there's many brethren that are uh, celebrating that and beginning to um, uh, celebrate the appointed time, the Feast of Ingathering, and having a wonderful time for this week. Uh, here on B'nai Shalom, we are going to be finishing out the Torah cycle with the last of the Torah portions, and uh, we'll be closing out this year uh, with all of the teaching, and all, we pray and hope that you've been blessed by the Torah cycle this year, and we'll be excited to be bringing something new to you each and every week when we uh, start the Torah cycle back up once again. If you're blessed by Lion of Land Ministries, B'nai Shalom, our um, Yavo, our monthly magazine, or any of the other things that we do here at Lion of Land Ministries, if the Lord would stir in your heart to make a, dona a donation, you can do so at llgive.com, and you can uh, make a one-time gift or sign up as one of our monthly donors. And we are always endeavoring in this ministry to be good stewards of the Lord's resources, to serve His name, His kingdom, and be a blessing to the brethren in everything that we do. So we pray that you're blessed by this broadcast and by all of us here at Line of Land Ministries. Now, let us set apart the Sabbath from the rest of the week with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom and Hag Sameach to you. Please join with our family as we usher in the Sabbath. unto the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now, Kish, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. Chamotzi, Chamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam. Chamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Husbands, now let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for my wonderful wife that you have given to me. I thank you, Lord, 
for her and for I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing. Bless her as she sees about the ways of the household, as she takes care of the children and educates them. And Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless her on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. <laughs> and now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'elim Adonai. Michamocha nedar bachodesh norat echilot osefele Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael otit le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et ha'shamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom ha'shavi shavat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch 
Hashem, Kivod Mahuto, Leolam Vayed, Yeshua Hamashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha v'shinan tam l'avanecha v'depardabam b'shivtecha b'yetecha uv'lechtecha v'derech u'shakbika uv'kumika u'kershatam la'ot ha'yadecha v'heyu la'totafot b'inenecha u'chetavtam ha'mazuzot b'techa uv'sharecha All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Yeah. 
Yahweh, Elohim, 
Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah V'zotabracha. Chapter 33. Now this is the blessing with which Moshe, the man of Elohim, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, Adonai came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand, and they followed in your steps. Everyone receives your words. Moshe charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Yaakov, and he was king in Yeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel together. May Reuven live and not die, nor his men be few. And this regarding Yehuda, so he said, Hear Adonai, the voice of Yehuda, and bring him to his people with his hands he contended for them, and may you be a help against his adversaries. Of Levi he said, Let your Tumim and your Urim belong to your godly men, who you proved at Massah, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach your ordinances to Yaakov and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Adonai, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him and those who hate him so that they will not rise again. Of Binyamin, he said, May the beloved of Adonai dwell in security by him who shields him all the day and he dwells between his shoulders. Of Yosef he said, Blessed of Adonai be his land, with the choice things of heaven, with the dew and from the deep lying beneath, and with the choice yield of the sun, and with the choice produce of the months, and with the best things of the ancient mountains, and with the choice things of the everlasting hills, and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let it come to the head of Yosef and to the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. And those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, 
and those of the thousands of Manasseh. Of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth, and Yisachar in your tents. They will call peoples to the mountain. There they will offer righteous sacrifices, for they will draw out the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Of Gad he said, Blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and tears the arm, also the crown of the head. Then he provided the first part for himself, for there the ruler's portion was reserved, and he came with the leaders of the people. He executed the justice of Adonai and his ordinances with Yisrael. Of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. Of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of blessing of Adonai, take possession of the sea and the south. Of Asher, he said, More blessed than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers and may he dip his foot in oil. Your locks will be iron and bronze and according to your days, so will your leisurely walk be. There is none like the Elohim of Yeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal Elohim is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, Destroy! So Yisrael dwells in security. The fountain of Yaakov secluded in a land of grain and new wine, his heavens also dropped down dew. Blessed are you, Yisrael, who is like you, a people saved by Adonai, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread upon their high places. Chapter 34 Now Moshe went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Yericho. And Adonai showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Yehuda as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Yericho, and the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then Adonai said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moshe, the servant of Adonai, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of Adonai. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beit Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moshe was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moshe in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moshe came to an end. Now Yehoshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moshe had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as Adonai had commanded Moshe. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moshe, whom Adonai knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which Adonai sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moshe performed in the sight of all Israel. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Vizotabracha. We see here in Deuteronomy chapter 32, at the very end, verses 48 through 52, it says, Adonai spoke to Moshe that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of Avarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Yercho, 
and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people as Aharon your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go up there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. This happened in last week's parashah. Those words were spoken to Moshe. In this week's parashah, we see the fulfillment of these things taking place. But what we just read said that Moshe broke faith with Adonai? When did Moshe not treat Adonai as holy among the sons of Israel? When did this happen? Well, if we're careful to examine, we can go back to Numbers chapter 20, verses 8 through 13, where Adonai gives Moshe this instruction. The context here is that the people are crying out for water. They're thirsty. And Moshe says to Adonai, what shall I do? Adonai answers and says, take the rod and you and your brother Aharon assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moshe took the rod from before Adonai just as he had commanded him. And Moshe and Aharon gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you from out of this rock? Then Moshe lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But Adonai said to Moshe and Aharon, Because you have not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with Adonai, and he proved himself holy among them. So we see from Numbers chapter 20 that it was the striking of the rock then that Adonai considered to be the act of offense. But why would Moshe have struck the rock? Well, if we go back even further to Exodus chapter 17, verses 3 through 6, we're going to find our answer. It says there, but the people thirsted for water. Now, this isn't the same occasion as what we just read in Numbers. This is an occasion that took place before that. The people thirsted for water and they grumbled against Moshe and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moshe cried out to Adonai saying, what shall I do to this people? a little more and they'll stone me. Then Adonai said to Moshe, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moshe did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So because we see here in this passage in Exodus that Moshe struck the rock the first time, when we get to the passage in Numbers, apparently he just assumed that he was to do the same thing the second time. Now, there's several important errors that were committed here, though, that we're going to examine briefly. There's something very unique in the instructions that Adonai gave Moshe in Numbers that wasn't given in the story in Exodus. It said in Numbers, take the rod 
and you and your brother Aharon assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. The first thing that's different about this is that Moshe was instructed to assemble the congregation. In the passage in Exodus, Moshe was just instructed to pass by them all. In other words, he was to allow them to see him coming out of the tabernacle after his conversation with Adonai and make his way to the rock so that all could see what was about to happen. In the Exodus passage, it's assumed that the congregation was waiting for Moshe already. In the passage in Numbers, he's specifically told to gather them together. Why? Well, I believe the reason is revealed in the Hebrew text. Where we see the English words, and speak to the rock, it says in Hebrew, v'divartem al haselah, which literally means, and speak, plural, to the rock. The fact that the word devar, to speak, is in the plural, indicates something that isn't plainly obvious upon reading this passage in the English. What I'm suggesting here is that I believe that the instruction Moshe was given in Numbers chapter 20 was to assemble the people and to have them speak to the rock. But I believe Moshe had had enough with a stiff-necked, stubborn people bent on grumbling and complaining, so he resorted to what he had done in the past, which was to strike the rock, not to speak to it. We see this when he shouts out to them, Shall we bring forth water? Now I believe this is the crux of the issue that Adonai had with Moshe. Could it be that Adonai wanted the people to exercise their faith? After all, Moshe won't be with them forever. Perhaps Adonai wanted them to exercise their faith by speaking directly to the rock and asking the rock to bring forth the water for them. This concept is further supported by the description Paul gives of this rock. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that Paul, in talking about this rock, that the children of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness, and he says there, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Messiah. Paul, in the letter to the Corinthian church, identifies the rock as being Messiah. Now, if we look at these passages again, with that viewpoint, we're going to see some tremendous imagery. If Yeshua was the rock, then when Moshe struck that rock the first time, it was symbolic of the first coming of Messiah when he was struck down for our sins. A rod striking the rock and water flowing forth is also symbolic of the spear of the centurion being thrust into the side of Yeshua while he was on the cross, resulting in blood and water to flow out of his body. Now the second time water was to come from the rock, however, this was to have been approached differently. If the people were supposed to have spoken to the rock, it's symbolic of his return, his second coming, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. It will be at that time that he will become the temple. And as Revelation 22 verse 1 says, a river of living water will flow forth from him, just as it did from the rock in the desert. Yeshua is our source.
of living waters. As our weekly reading cycle comes to a close, may we be reminded that it's always about Yeshua. As we turn back to the beginning of the Torah for the next week and restart our readings at Bereshit, let's be mindful that every word is about Him and every word points to Him. So may this next year of our lives be one in which we become increasingly mindful that Yeshua is the source of living waters. He is the goal at which the entirety of the Torah and the prophets are aimed. With that, we say, Chazak, Chazak, Vanit Chazek, be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened by the rock who brings forth living waters. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. And uh, if you would, um, turn in your Bibles first to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Uh, this being the intermediate Sabbath of the Feast of Tabernacles, we have a traditional set of readings and teachings that we give during this feast uh, from the Torah portion. It's a portion we've already studied this year, but we review again a particular portion uh, from here, and then we're going to move to the Haftor portions. And as you all know, this year I've been emphasizing teaching the Haftor portions. I'd like to use the majority of my time for that. Uh, which is from the prophet Ezekiel. We'll be there in a few moments. But I wanted to make sure that everybody knew that this was the traditional Torah teaching for this holiday. And it's in uh, Exodus uh, 34. Let me begin to read to you from that portion, and you'll quickly see it's about a portion that we have discussed uh, many times before. Actually, let me start at chapter 33, and at verse 12, that's actually where it begins, but I want to emphasize chapter 34. Beginning at chapter 33 and at verse 12, it goes like this. Then Moses said to the Lord, See thou dost say to me, Bring up this people, but thou thyself hast not let me know uh, whom thou wilt send with me. Moreover, thou hast said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee... If I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways that I may know thee, so that I might find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this is a nation of thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to them, If thy presence does not go up with us, do not lead us from here. Um, and essentially, this is the moment when the children of Israel are out in the wilderness. Uh, they're tabernacling in the wilderness. They're on the great journey to the promised land. And the Lord has gotten fed up with them and basically threatens the idea that I'm going to let you guys just go and do your thing. I'm going to let you wander if you want. Um, and you eventually will get to the promised I'll point you in the direction of the promised land. And you just go over there and try to get in there on your own. And Moses is wise enough to realize that if the Lord was not going to be present in the camp with them and journeying with them, then this was all going to be in vain. And that, the, that they needed the Lord to help them every day of the way. Now, why did they select this portion to go along with the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, one of the wonderful things that we learn 
in keeping the Feast of Tabernacles is that we get up out of our houses and we go out and we dwell in a tent or some kind of a mobile structure, a sukkah, you know, as it's defined in the Hebrew. And all of a sudden, the normal amenities of our home are no longer available to us. And we suddenly find ourselves in a situation where we have to figure out how we're going to solve the water problem and the latrine problem and how we're going to get stuff moved from here to there and, and how, how are we going to stay warm? How, how are we going to stay cool? Uh, you know, what about all the members of the family? How, how are making sure they're all taken care of? Because all of the stuff we have in our homes, the stuff that we have in the city, it's no longer there to support it. You've got to figure everything out. And one of the things that is, is essential for us as to spiritually mature is the following, is if you think you can get through this life and uh, get through it well without the Lord's help on a daily basis, you're just an accident happening all the time. You know, if anything does happen good, it's pure happenstance, not because, you know, it was set up that way. And a lot of people, quite honestly, crash through life like that. Uh, they're just a, a perpetual train wreck, you know, is their life. And it's not that much fun uh, for them. But if you want to do it safely, if you want to do it well, if you want to have good success, you better have the Lord involved with you. You better have his principles there. You better follow his commandments. You better be on the, on the highway of, that he lifts you up on instead of the low way down in the ditch. Uh, and to get up on the highway and stay on the highway means that you have to have the Lord guiding you and helping you along the way. Now, the children of Israel, in this particular case, um, they were testing the Lord. They were actually pushing them away. They were actually suggesting that they know better than what the Lord knows. And Moses is pleading the case for the children of Israel before the Lord and when the Lord hints that he may just go ahead and leave the camp and go somewhere else, why Moses is begging and says, don't do that. You know, don't, don't leave us to ourselves. Don't leave us and point us in the direction and say, oh, the promised land's over there, go get it. Uh, don't do that to us. And what furthermore follows is Moses suddenly realized that the essence of life, the really important stuff in living, is about your relationship with God. That's the important. If you can get that right, other stuff is academic. It works out fine. If you make something else a higher priority than him, you're, you're going to have trouble. It's not going to work out the way you think. And from this, he, when he gets the Lord to agree to stay in the camp, he says in verse 18, Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. I, I now understand it's important for you to be here. Show me your glory. I want to even get to know you even better. And, of course, what follows is that uh, the Lord says, well, you can't see my face directly. And, but he sets up a way for him to come up on the mountain to cut out a set of tablets and bring those with him and that God will show himself to him in a, in a safe, unique way and then rewrite the commandments again on the tablets, and he will have the tablets to take back down again. And as you know, the rest of the story goes on to about how he goes up on the mountain, 
and he slips into an area of the rocks that shield and block his view. He can only look like one direction. And the Lord puts him in that safe place in the cleft of the rock. And then he walks by by putting his hand in front of Moses' face, then, then turns so that he can see the backside of the Lord, but he can't see his face. And that way Moses is not harmed. And in the course of that, of doing that, God describes God. And the famous verses, chapter 34, that's the reason why I was homing in on this. This is what I really wanted to share with you. Verse 6 and 7, this is God describing God. This is not a man describing God. This is not some other, this isn't Moses telling you about the Lord. This isn't a prophet telling you about the Lord. This isn't some theologian sitting around telling you about the Lord. This is straight from the horse's mouth, if the Lord will allow me to use that pun, uh, to, this is directly coming from the Lord. Here's what he has to say. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And then Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. This is of particular importance to us um, for what this is about. Let me also just tell you that there is um, in this verse, verse 7, if you were to look upon the actual Torah scroll, you'll see an enlarged letter noon. And the letter noon, its individual meaning has to do with the quickening of life. And so an enlarged lettering is this is the essence of life. This, this is what life is really about. And it's about knowing the Lord, knowing who he is, believing in what he says, and understanding his ways of doing things. Now, this passage that I read here from verses 6 and 7 is subtitled by all Torah teachers as the 13 attributes of God. If you're going to get to know the Lord, you're going to learn these 13 attributes of God. This is God, the 13 things God describes himself with. Now, if you go and you take that passage of Scripture and you try to count up 13 things, you won't get 13 things. You'll get 10. But we say there's 13 attributes. Even though if you list here, it only shows you 10. So what's the deal? What, what's going on here? It turns out that the phrase at the first of this in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, those are the first three. Now I'll give you some of the Jewish commentary on this, which I find utterly fascinating, because they see that that phrase, the Lord, the Lord God, is three separate attributes, three separate entities, if you will. And the first two are emphasizing elements of mercy, the Lord, the Lord. And God is emphasizing the attribute of justice in it, the, the characteristics of justice. Now, if you look back at God, and we, let's take the three persons of God that we understand, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's think about this for a moment. The Son comes and does this wonderful work of redemption. 
He's the one that illustrates the grace and mercy of God. The Holy Spirit comforts us. Okay? We're, the Holy Spirit is not known for judging the world. And the Messiah said, I didn't come to judge the world. He, we're not, we don't know him of that. The Father is the one who's going to judge the world. And take, take account of the sin uh, committed by men. So you have two entities that are emphasizing mercy and one entity that emphasizes justice. And so thus they have the same meaning here. There are two attributes of mercy and one attribute of justice to bring about due process and justice. The, um, like I said, this is an extremely powerful Expression here, if, if someone's going to come to know and get to know intimately God, and, and the reason why this is given here is because the children of Israel, they had come out of Egypt and they got saved. They had the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. They were redeemed. Firstborn was redeemed and saved. Then the whole nation was saved when they crossed the Red Sea. They came out. God gave them the Torah. You know, at Mount Sinai, they, they were plugged in. To, to the program that God had here, and all of a sudden they found themselves in deep trouble with the Lord. In more trouble with the Lord then than they ever were back in Egypt. And they were going to have to give an account, and the Lord's ready to leave them. The Lord is ready. I'm done with you people. Um, and Moses pleads the case for the Lord to remain. And then Moses has enough sense about him that the real key to this relationship with God is getting to know God. Um, I always tell this one story about myself. It's, it's a little bit of a humorous story. As, when I first got into public ministry, um, I, was, I was asked to come to this one particular conference uh, to speak. Now, the conference center they had set up was a beautiful thing. There was a lot of people at the conference. They even had a cafeteria at this conference center where... The attendees could go and get your tray and go through the cafeteria for your meals. And uh, I was in the line to the cafeteria. I was going in there to get some lunch. And uh, I got in line, and the, there was a fellow in front of me. He was talking to his friend who was in front of him. And I accidentally overheard the conversation. He said, you know, uh, they've got this guy, Monty Judah, is here, and he's going to be teaching here. And suddenly it kind of hit me. Well, they've heard about me, but they don't know what I look like because I'm standing right there and they're talking in front of me, you know, so they obviously don't know who I am. Uh, at least they've never seen me. And um, he proceeds to tell his friend something like this. He said, you know, Monty used to be in the Air Force. Well, I wasn't really trying to correct him. I was truly trying to just help the guy. And I said, no, uh, I was in the Navy, but I worked on a lot of Air Force programs. And he turned and he looked at me after he heard what I said. And right to my face, he goes, no, he was in the Air Force. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm here. You know, he's talking about me third person. I'm, I'm, I'm right here in first person. And I looked at him again and I said, no, I was in the, I was in the Navy but I worked on Air Force programs. You know, I'm speaking first person. He's talking third person. Well, it finally hit him that he was actually talking to me. And he got up and he walked away in a huff. Just left the chow line. 
And at that point, I suddenly realized, you know, the guy was embarrassed. He he was uh, offended uh, to a certain extent. And just kind of in desperation, I said, Lord, I said, what was all that about? And the Lord answered me. I actually heard the audible voice of God in my inner spirit. And he said, Monty, men do that to me all the time. And it hit me, you know, we're not willing to listen to what the Lord says about himself. We'd rather listen to some guy describing than listen to him. The thing I love about this passage is this is God describing God. You can take this to the bank. This is exactly what he says he is. And you can call upon these attributes from the Lord. You can pray to the Lord, speak to him, and speak to the attributes he has and appeal to him for aid and help. It, it, it empowers you. It educates you. It orients you to the Lord so that you can have a relationship with the Lord. And that's what God was doing here with Moses. He wanted to make sure, Moses, I'm going to tell you straight up who I am. You wanted to see my glory? Let me tell you who I am. And so he tells him. And I think these are two of examples of some of the most powerful words that we get out of the Torah portion. Now, why again are we teaching this and reviewing this again at the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, one of the things that we learned at the Feast of Tabernacles, when we go out into this temporary shelter, it's not all that safe and secure. And by the way, we are told at the feast to remember our ancestors, how they traveled, and the tents and dwellings they lived in during the Exodus. Well, part of the reason why the Lord wants us to do this is learn the same lessons. The lessons I was teaching them in the wilderness. Learn those lessons as well. And he's appealing to us by reminding of this is I need each of you to come and ask to speak with me. Don't, and, and in a camp, it's very easy to, you know, become part of the group. And you just do what the group does. But he says, yeah, I want you to do that, be part of the group. But when you get there, I want you to come and appeal to speak to me. Come and get to know me better. Uh, so that I'll dwell in the camp with you. And it's really a micro-teaching of the whole concept of God establishing his kingdom and trying to get us to the promised land and, and what should be the essence of uh, what we should be learning and what should be most important to us uh, about observing this holiday. So now with that said about what's reminding us of our Torah portion, let me move you over to Ezekiel now. And this is the Haftor portion that is now taught in conjunction with this same Sabbath. So remembering what we have uh, reviewed here from the Torah portion and for this intermediate Sabbath, let me take you to the portion that we have for this one. We're at Ezekiel chapter 38. And beginning at verse 1, and it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them, 
splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Persia, Ethiopia, put with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer, with all of its truth. Beth to Garma, from the remote parts of the north and all of its troops. Many people with you. And then he goes on to say, verse 7, Be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which has been continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. Before I go any further, Sages of Israel, the prophets of Israel, the rabbis of Israel have all said that the reason why this portion is to be taught on the intermediate Sabbath of of, uh, every Sukkot, every Feast of Tabernacles, is the belief that in the latter days that centered around the Feast of Tabernacles, either immediately before, during, or immediately after, sometime in the fall, that this war will take place. And what is specifically to happen? This group, Gog and Magog, Gog Gog is an enemy, an arch-type enemy of Israel and God, and Magog means those with Gog or those from Gog. So it's, it's Gog and Magog is not two, it's really one great mass of, of confederated forces that come in. And he lists nations, people from various nations that will be part of this coalition that attacks Israel from the north. And the key thing I read the verse to is the attack doesn't come until after some of the people of Israel have been regathered from the nations. It's only in this generation, since 1948, that we have had the prerequisite nature for this prophecy to be fulfilled. So from 1948 on, Israel pays very close attention to the enemies that are on the north. Because that's what this prophecy is talking about. He's talking about a a band of many enemies that will attack from the north, they will come down into the mountains of Israel. And what we're talking about is the Sumerian mountains, right down the backbone, right through the middle of Israel, right down toward Jerusalem, and the Judean mountains, which are to the south. That the attack will be that the enemy will occupy those areas. They won't occupy the Jordan River or the coastlands. They'll come right down through the middle of the country, and they'll, they'll occupy the high ground. Now, that is... That statement right there to the ancient peoples was extremely scary. Why? Because if you take an army and you go in an ancient warfare, you want the high ground. If your army is on the higher ground than the, than the other guy, you have an instant advantage. Because for him to come to you, he's got to run up the hill and waste a lot of energy running up the hill. For you, you run down the hill and you still are full of energy when you get to the bottom where the enemy's at. The advantage is to the one on the higher ground. And that still, that advantage still exists today in modern warfare. The high ground is the ground that you want to have and hold uh, when you're facing an enemy. And so the attack is to come in and take the high ground of Israel. Now, in modern terms, let me tell you what I feel that's really saying. That the attack will be so severe that the whole nation, will, its very existence will be threatened. 
And that's what is described in this battle. It's describing a, uh, in modern terms, after the Israel has come back from the, the captivity of the nations, reforms Israel, that there's going to be a battle of a northern force that's going to come down and probably going to rip right through the middle of Israel and threaten the very existence of the state of Israel. And oh, by the way, if you've ever kept track of the modern warfare that goes on in Israel today, every battle that Israel gets into, it's for the existence, the life existence of Israel. There is no, it's not like the United States where we ship everybody over and have a war over there and then we come home. No, the war is right here at your front doorstep um, when you're in Israel. And so they absolutely must win or they lose everything. Uh, from it, and that's the threatening nature nature of this war that's talked about. Now it goes on to say that the motivation behind the enemy is to take spoil. That there's something of value in Israel that they have uh, that they want, and that's part of the reason why they're going to come down and expend all of the funds and money and so forth to wage war because they plan on stealing something. Now, what in the world? does Israel have that's worth stealing? You know, that other nations would definitely go there and do it. Well, it's only in recent years that we've figured out what the answer to that is. Turns out that Israel in recent years has found and discovered and is processing right now, getting ready to process the Leviathan uh, oil and gas fields off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. The former Soviet Union, Russia, the number one product they sell for their economy is oil and gas. They sell it to Europe. And if Europe can get an alternative, get a competitive edge from some other supplier, um, Russia will be in deep, deep trouble. The price will plummet and it will go below where they can thrive and survive. And the Russians are very concerned about Israel's gas fields. If they build the pipeline, as they are suggesting they're going to do, either through Turkey or all the way to Greece, and then supply that into Europe, uh, Russia's going to be in deep, deep trouble for using Europe as a major customer for them. And what I don't know if you all know it, but the reason why there's a waging war in Syria the reason why there's so many countries that are involved in the battle that's going on there is there's a bunch of gas and oil transmission lines that come out of the Persian Gulf that go through Syria on up toward Europe, and whoever controls those pipelines, um, that's a huge strategic uh, element. And that's the reason why the warfare in Syria is probably the, the, uh, the ultra-driving force for the conflict. Um, and the Muslims are mostly involved in it, and the reason is because they know that energy, oil and gas, it's what helps the Western nations do the things they do. And they don't like the Western nations, don't like the way they live and so forth. So they love the idea of choking off the oil, the idea of, of messing with the Western nations over this kind of stuff. Well, that's what we have now in, in the Middle East. It's what's now understood. The spoil is that Israel has just recently discovered stuff that effectively, when it comes to natural gas, replaces Russia in terms of sales to, uh, to um, 
the Europe. And so there's a huge spoil. Uh, whoever attacks Israel and controls Israel will be controlling uh, those natural resources and what goes on. Now, the scripture goes on to describe a very interesting battle. As you read down here further, you find out that they come in, and then the Lord shows up for this battle. And it doesn't say the armies of Israel, it says the Lord shows up. And it says, and he turns the enemy around. And he gets the vanguard looking toward the western sea, and the rear guard looking toward the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea. And then the Lord attacks them. And in the course of them being confused and turned around, uh, they're attacked very severely. And he describes that the army that came down there to attack Israel is literally slaughtered. Slaughtered. In fact, he goes through elaborate burial procedures about it. They'll be spending seven months just cleaning up the, you know, burying the dead. And some years, as many more years, to just clean up the whole battlefield um, as a result of them coming down. And it's a dramatic element. And, and I want you to understand how profound this is. If you, if you go study today the Arab-Israeli wars, you're going to see the evidence of where God has stepped in, intervened, and helped Israel. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but in every battle from the War of Independence to the Suez Canal battle in 56 to the, the 73 war, Yom Kippur war, the Six-Day War in 67, uh, all these different battles, the battle with Lebanon and so forth, Israel, from a military standpoint, Israel wipes them all out. And the enemies of Israel suffer great losses. Now, the rest of the world, and socio-political, they don't want to go around crediting Israel with that much of a victory. So I love it when the Palestinians attack, and um, they get slaughtered, they get wiped out, and because they survived, they stand up and they say, we won. I, I love that part. You know, they, I survived, therefore we won the battle. Uh, and, and by the way, it is a commentary that uh, the only time they're going to lose the war that they will admit they lose the war is they're all dead. This is the battle that says they're all dead. That God wipes them out. And uh, if I recall correctly, he says that he brings fire down from heaven. And that kind of conjures up the sound, you know, the same story as Elijah calling down fire from heaven that burned up the altar and when he was fighting the prophets of Baal. Now, I am, since I used to be a military logistician, I am somewhat aware, and just by natural things, I pay attention to things that talk about modern warfare and new types of weapons and new types of defenses, and I used to be associated with missile defense and, you know, rocketry and other kinds of things like that. Let me go ahead and just, I'll give you a quick summary on the thing. I think that Israel has developed some special weapons that they haven't revealed the world yet. And they may have a space-based weapon that literally could shoot fire down from heaven. I don't know. But I do know this, that the technology trend, the trend of technology, is Israel is at the cutting edge of technology breakthroughs when it comes to warfare. Let me give you just one real quick example. You know, they've got their tanks, the Merkaval tank. And a tank is, of course, subject to 
an anti-tank weapon, a rocket fired at the tank, close range, and so forth. Israel has, has built a defensive system that rides on the outside of their tanks. And anytime a missile or a rocket is fired at them, this thing fires something out and hits and destroys the rocket and the RPG or whatever the case may be, destroys it feet, many feet away from the tank so it never hits the tank. And this thing works. This thing really works. They can drive that tank into an urban area and have people up close turn around a corner and shoot at them, and this thing will destroy all the weapons coming in against them. The world's never seen a tank like that before. You know, they've got it. They have that technology. And that's just one example of some very serious new technologies that have come out uh, for them. Israel's Air Force... I think the only nation that can like, even come close to matching would be the United States of America. And Israel just accepted delivery of the new F-35 uh, tactical fighter, stealth tactical fighter, and they now have enough aircraft for two full squadrons. And the F-35 tactical fighter, I will just tell you right now, uh, you put one of those in the sky. If you're another airplane that isn't an F-35 and you're in the sky, you're dead. You are a dead man. This thing will nail you, and you'll never see it coming. So, and by the way, we know Israel has a tremendous air force and, and outstanding pilots uh, that are trained to do it. I'll, I'll give you one, one simple war story that I had the privilege of knowing many years ago when I was in aerospace engineering. On, at the Lebanon War, that Israel, uh, Ariel Sharon became very famous. He was the commanding general that went into Lebanon. There was the largest jet dogfight in the history of the world that took place during that war. It was called the Becca Valley dogfight. Um, Syria was sending up their MiGs uh, against the Israeli jets, and it was reported at the end of the day that Israel had shot down 85 MiGs and had lost two airplanes. 85 to 2. The, the ratio there is just completely different than any modern warfare time we've ever had. And look, Israel lied. They shot down 152 MiGs and lost none. But they didn't want it to sound too good because it was like off the scales. The Soviet air marshal was in Damascus, Syria, the day after that happened, trying to figure out why were frontline Russian MiGs with Russian pilots in them, how did they get slaughtered so fast? The Israelis. I personally don't, I, I, I'll credit them with great military skills, but I really credit them it's almost like God's on their side. This battle described in Ezekiel 38 says God is definitely on their side. And not only that, he shows up to the battle this time for the world to see. The prophet Joel goes on to say in chapter 2 about this northern army that comes down and is destroyed. He says, from that moment forward, and we're talking about the end of the age, from that moment forward, 
the name Israel will never be put to shame again in the world that God has done. Showed up as the God of Israel, and he will be defending Israel. That's the stage that is set just before the Great Tribulation. Those are the events that we expect at the end of the age, just before the Great Tribulation. So, why do we teach this at the Feast of Tabernacles? Because the sages say there's something about the teaching of the Feast of Tabernacles, about being on a journey, being on an exodus, and traveling in tents and so forth, that is going to be associated with how God delivers his people in the Great Tribulation. And that this war will somehow be associated with the Feast of Tabernacles and will be part of the lesson so that we can do that. Well, my friends, I am one of a few teachers who stand up and say, hey, you know, that whole story about that people that came out of Egypt and journeying through, it's a prophecy. It's going to happen to the last generation. And it's called the greater exodus. And everything that we can learn about keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, becoming a community of faith, taking care of one another, getting out of your house, getting away from where the danger will be, getting into the camp of the righteous where God joins with you, then he will defend us in that camp like he will defend Israel in this battle. And I don't know about you, but I like the idea... If we're going to escape and we're going to have to go through the great tribulation, I like the idea that God has set up his tent and our tents amongst our tents to help us to get through the great tribulation. I think that's a wonderful plan, God, and I intend to pitch my tent as close to his tent as I can. Amen? So that's our portion. So here at the Feast of Tabernacles, that's the reason why we teach this portion to get us to look beyond ourselves, to get us to pursue the Lord's glory. Let's see God glorify himself, and let's see how he manifests himself in the midst of um, our camp, in the midst of this world that we live in. Amen? So let's pray. Father, thank you for the Feast of Tabernacles. Thank you for all the lessons that we learn from it. Thank you for this Sabbath in the midst of your festival. We ask, Lord, that you would put within our own hearts while we're at the feast that we would pursue and want to see your glory, Lord, that you would manifest yourself even stronger to us, that we would get to know you even better, and that we would learn to listen to what you have to say. Help us, Lord, when it comes to the end-time events, that our defense is in you, our protection is in you. Help us, Lord, to believe that, implement that, and do that. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Enjoy your feast. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, to chapter 17, and uh, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let us go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time and this week of teaching, Lord. And Father, as we uh, close out the uh, Torah cycle for this year and get ready to begin anew in several weeks, Father, I pray that um, we would be blessed, strengthened, and encouraged, Lord, uh, like no other. I pray that this would be the capstone that is worthy 
and honorable to your name and to your teaching, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for the Torah. We thank you for your commandments and your instruction and the covenant that you have made uh, with the children of Israel and with us, the descendants of the ancients. So, Father, we love you. We bless you and we thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion is the final Torah portion in the Torah cycle entitled Vazoth Habracha, which is the blessing that Moses puts upon the children of Israel beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and concluding in uh, the entire portion and the entire book of Deuteronomy all the way through chapter 34. This blessing that Moses, of course, pours out upon the children of Israel, he's standing on the mountain, and this is the final words in which he pours out this blessing upon the children of Israel entering into the promised land. And then in chapter 34 is when Moses, he dies upon uh, the mountain of Mount Nebo. And uh, it's said that he, wherever he was buried, that no one knows where his grave to this day. And it says that there has never been a prophet like Moses who knew the Lord face to face uh, that has arise or will arise in Israel ever again. Now, this is not obviously to contrast Yeshua the Messiah being himself the, the, the Messiah, and that, yes, Moses is this Messiah-like figure that, we, that points to the Messiah, but truly a prophet like Moses, who was a man and who God called and spoke to and used to teach his word, his commandments, and his covenant, and to use him as a savior to bring out the children of Israel, delivering them from the slavery of Egypt in the same manner that Yeshua the Messiah delivers us from the slavery of sin. One of the traditional readings for this, uh, for this Torah portion is the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. When the Messiah went up, was upon the mountain, and some of the apostles went to go and see him on this high mountain. This is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew chapter 17, also in chapters 9 of both Mark and Luke. And so we're going to read this passage here and identify some of the reasons why this is the traditional reading for the last of the Torah portions. Um, but then the there's another passage I want to go to uh, that I think would be a fitting end to our Torah cycle for this year and the teaching of the Brit Hadashah portions. If you turn to Matthew chapter 17, let us now read this story here. Now, after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as, white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with, them, with him. Then Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is, uh, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Yeshua came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Yeshua only. Now they came down from the mountain. Yeshua commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Yeshua answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will, will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood 
that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. This is one of these interesting stories of, of Yeshua, and it's, it's got a couple of different layers to it. The fact that the Messiah said that only a few disciples were allowed to see this, and that it was said, it's like, don't tell this story until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He had already told them from, from early on, from a previous time, that, they, that he was going to die and be risen, and was going to be resurrected from the dead. When this had happened, obviously the, the reaction of these men, these disciples, they, they knew that this was the plan all along, because this is what the Messiah said to them. It's also interesting that obviously these Gospels were written at a later time, so by the time that these words were actually written down, it was after the fact, and it was after the Messiah had risen. Again, this is one of those times in which it was clearly stated in the narrative that the voice of God spoke and said, this is my Son in whom, I well, in whom I'm well pleased, and this is, of course, um, connected to the angel that came before Mary that said, this is, this is going to be the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And that there, there's obviously a, a connection there, and that this is one of those times in which it was very clear that Yeshua was the Son of God. As much as we might question that, as much as the people, the Pharisees, or any others that were there in the first century might have questioned it at the time, this is one of those times in which it is clearly stated that yes, He is the Son of God. And it's to our benefit to know these things, and sometimes these things are spoken plainly to us. We, of course, still have to believe in our hearts. We still have to know and trust and hear the words and have them penetrate our heart and our mind to know and to believe in Christ and in Him crucified. I said last week, I, I, I talked a lot about how the fact that Israel was looking for a Messiah, that Israel has always been looking for a Messiah. We've been pointed to the Messiah from, from all the words of the Torah and the prophets and the generations of old and the words of the Lord that has spoken that we are looking for the Messiah. But even when you have heard plainly Yeshua of Nazareth was the Messiah, there are still those that don't believe. There are still those that don't follow him, that don't understand that. And ultimately, that's what our goal is in the teaching of all Torah, is to point to the Messiah. Point to our need for the Messiah, for a Savior, for the acceptable sacrifice to pay the price for our sins, because the Torah reveals sin. It reveals iniquity. Transgression of the law is sin. When we don't do what God has commanded us to do, that is sin, and it identifies why we need a Savior. If anyone is teaching Torah, and does not conclude the whole fact that we are teaching these things, these are the ways we should obey the Lord, but we always fall short, then we are pointing to the fact in a hope that, we ha that there is an acceptable sacrifice. If we don't teach that there's an acceptable sacrifice, then the Torah is a miserable bit of literature that tells us you're all deserving of death and there's no hope for you. But we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God that is all-loving, who is forgiving of sins, and who has taken, who will pay the price, who walked between the pieces instead of Abraham so that he would pay the price for the breaking of the covenant, which Israel inevitably did. And that is ultimately, as a teacher of Torah, we are to point to the Messiah and teach you that he is the Messiah. I can stand up and say every single week that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah. Is that truly going to stir in the hearts of the people to then know, believe it, and then start living that way? No, I need to teach you it. I need to teach you the principles of why we need the Messiah. And Moses, and the words of Moses, point to the Messiah. 
The work of Moses as a prophet is a prerequisite to understanding the Messiah. It's interesting here on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses appears on this mountain. Now, it's kind of interesting if the uh, apostles were there and they see him and apparently they knew it was Moses or he introduced himself. Like, who is this old guy? Because this was obviously, you know, a couple thousand years uh, away from when Moses was. It's not like they have photographs back in the day um, that they, they see him and they, whether there was introductions, pleasantries exchanged, I'm not quite sure. But ultimately what this does reveal is it reveals Moses' place in the grand scheme of the Messiah and God. See, Moses, he went up on a mountain. He went up on Mount Nebo, and, and he just died. The Lord, the Lord just took him. And his grave, no one knows where his grave is to this day. And it's like this is part of the mystery of what happened to Moses at the end. And the reason why I believe this is one of the traditional readings of this Torah, of this Torah portion is it reveals what happened to Moses. We have seen Moses again. Imagine that. Honestly, truthfully, think about this. Sometimes there's too much of a separation between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Some Messianic congregations teach too much Torah. Some Christian churches teach way too much in the, in the gospel. And sometimes we don't, put it, we don't put two and two together that Moses at the end of Deuteronomy is not the last time that we hear from Moses. It says he was here on the mountain. Here he was. And he, and he is one who is shown, who is pointing to the Messiah in the same way that Elijah the prophet points to the Messiah. And that it's really, some might question that it's like, are we looking for somebody in the spirit of Moses? Since Yeshua likened Elijah unto John the Baptist. That John the Baptist was the Elijah-like prophet, the prerequisite to the Messiah coming, because it was John the Baptist that declared Yeshua to be the Messiah. And that Elijah, that's the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of the prophet, is the one who points to the Messiah. Now, some people have made that argument before, but when the scripture says that these men were there, I, I believe that to be the case. Especially when you're talking about the, the miraculous thing that's happening here, that he was transfigured to have his face shown like bright light and his garments turned to white, and that this was like a this is like the coronation of the Messiah. That God comes, he, 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 His voice booms from the clouds and speaks a vow over Him and declares Him to be the Son of God. And there are witnesses there, Elijah and Moses, both being witnesses to Yeshua being the Messiah. And that's ultimately what Moses does. And that's ultimately what the Torah does, is the Torah points to Yeshua being the Messiah. All five books of Moses, the law of Moses, declares and is, a, and is a witness to him. That It shows why we need a Messiah. It shows why we need a Savior. A savior. I've already said that, that it, uh, it points out sin and in transgression of the law is sin. But we also have the entire Levitical priesthood, which you got to remember Moses was a Levite, that that sacrificial system enables the sacrifice of Yeshua and his crucifixion to be the Messiah. Without it, there is no declaration of the acceptable lamb sacrifice. Because if Yeshua is going to be the acceptable sacrifice, it has to fall in line with the word of God and with the Torah. It, once again, pay is a witness to him being the acceptable sacrifice. And that's how we need to look at Torah. When we start the cycle new again, we need to understand that the Torah points to the Messiah, and that's what we teach as a messianic ministry. 
Unfortunately, the, the majority of people that teach the Torah throughout the history of, of the time and in the world is Jews that don't believe Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah. And they teach the Torah and they teach it as, as a list and a lifestyle of lists and do's and don'ts and how to live and operate in, in a society that follows and obeys the Lord. But ultimately, the Torah is a curse. It's a death sentence upon those who transgress the law and who disobey the Lord, which we all do. We have to be pointing to the Messiah. We have to be witnessing of the Messiah because ultimately the world needs Yeshua to, the world needs to know that testimony and believing in Yeshua because no one goes to the Father except through Him more than any other aspect of, Torah, of, of the Scripture, including the Torah. In Messianics, there's many Messianics that might say, you know what, we got to teach uh, Torah to our Christian brethren. Absolutely. It is the thing that is the foundation of all scriptural belief and belief in the Messiah. But we need to understand that the world needs Yeshua more than Christians need the Torah. Because there is a greater plan, a greater purpose, the bird's eye view of everything that God is intending to do, that salvation comes through his son. And that is why Christianity has grown in the last 2,000 years into what it is, because the great plan of God is for all the families of the earth to be blessed and come into faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's by Abraham's seed that delivers that message. Yeshua was Abraham's seed. And that his testimony in his gospel, his good news, is that good news that all the families of the earth need to hear so that they are blessed. That is what the Torah is. That's what the Torah needs to do. Yeshua is in the Torah. The Torah is Yeshua, the Word made flesh. And the two must be taught together, hand in hand. That is the, the message and that is the purpose of of why we teach Torah in this ministry. That is why in Messianic congregations, Torah is taught is because we are to teach the balance between the word of God as it was given through Moses and how it compares, relates, and points to and witnesses to Yeshua the Messiah. I could not end our Torah cycle for this year, teaching, having the opportunity to teach the Brit Hadashah for this year, without going back to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the passage of Scripture, the books uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which has been something that we've gone to nearly every single week, almost, because of what I've lovingly referred to it as the greatest Torah teaching that has ever been given, because it is Yeshua standing on the mountain, and He's speaking about Torah, commandments, quotes, that have been given to us through the law of Moses. And so to look and to, to see and identify these words in the Sermon on the Mount, has it was a great Torah teaching. And we've touched on it, you know, almost week after week uh, at times when I've come to reference it. Well, so what I want to do to close out the Torah cycle for this year is let's go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the last things that Yeshua was intending to teach us and to share with us that truly encapsulate what we need to learn in our hearts, in our faith, in our walk, as we walk uprightly before the Lord in the following and the keeping of Torah, and as believers of Yeshua Messiah, how we need to carry ourselves, how we present ourselves, how we present the Word of God. What is what, what When other people see us as believers of Yeshua and followers and keepers, pursuant uh, of keeping Torah, though no one keeps it perfectly, what is it that people are to see? 
And what are the things that we need to be mindful of in this, in this lifestyle of the things that we do? So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and we are going to begin at verse 15. And all the time, lots of times there's warnings given to us. The end of the book of Deuteronomy is all about warnings to the children of Israel for going into the land, rejecting the covenant, and the Lord scattering them into the nations. And it's a warning for us to tr- learn something. That's why we put warning labels on things. That's why we tell our kids and teach our kids to be careful around the stove because it's hot. And w- Warning labels. We need warning labels, especially in day-to-day lives throughout the world. And so here, uh, the Messiah is giving one of those last bits of warning, specifically with regard to false prophets. So in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, it says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. I love that the, the parallel here is he's wrapping up this Sermon on the Mount. He's going back to this concept of fruit. Because remember, the whole Torah cycle, uh, the first Torah teaching kind of goes back to, it's kind of a story about a piece of fruit. And it's a piece of fruit that is this balance between good fruit and bad fruit. Bad fruit. It is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we here we, at the very end, he's now talking about the differences between good fruit and bad fruit. And you will know good teachers, false prophets. You will know your brethren by the fruit that they bear. Are they descendants of the ancients in the way that we ate of this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? And some people and mankind after eating that fruit has either turned to evil or turned to good. But the choice has been allowed and laid out before us. Are we going to be a good person that bears good fruit? Are we going to be like a branch that bears good fruit so we can be grafted back in into the tree that is Israel? Or are we a branch that bears bad fruit by anything that we do? Do we mislead the flock? Do we, even though we might put ourselves in a position where we minister to fellow brethren, amongst fellow brethren, whatever congregation, Bible study you might find yourself in, what is the fruit that you bear? Is it one, and, and, and obviously we'd have to point to the fruits of the Spirit. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, you read all about the fruits of the Spirit, and then we also see the works of the flesh, and there is a contrasting list of things that we need to have present in our lives and be what we do and how we present ourselves amongst our brethren and with our fellow brethren with all of the fruits of the Spirit, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things that we need to live and operate in as followers of the Lord, or do we commit works of the flesh? idolatry, fornication, and all of these terrible things, bouts of, of wrath and anger. I don't have that list to roll off the, the top of my head. I like to remember the good ones as far as how my memory is, <laughs> serves me. But ultimately, we need to be ones that bear good fruit. And that's how, how we, he knows who his followers are. The prophets, uh, the, the prophets of Israel warn us of bad shepherds that mislead the flock. And ultimately, that is something we will be combating with as long as mankind is left to its own devices in the course of trying to tend to the creation. There are those that sin. There are those that that mislead the brethren, mislead the flock. But when we need to see and look and judge amongst one another, 
And while we are being merciful to our brethren for the mistakes that they make, we must look and see what kind of fruit do they produce? What kind of fruit do we produce? And we're all going back to the garden and it's all like, which one are are we ones? Are we the people that reject the sin, that turn away from the sin, even back to the sin of the garden, which is the, which is the, the grandfather of all sins, that all other sins all stem from that one sin, and that we still have a choice. Are we going to be the ones that bear good fruit or bad fruit? The next uh, couple of verses goes on to this warning as well. For the brethren who might say that they love the Lord, they follow him. They might do incredible things in the name of the Lord, but there is something, that, but there is a warning here. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Many interpretations for these verses have been had before. This is a warning to even the household of faith that anyone who has ever confessed and said that they love the Lord, they follow him, they follow his word, his commandments, they perform miracles, signs and wonders and do all of these things. But there is a warning to all people that there is a chance that even at the end of the age, the Lord will look to you and say, depart from me, ye who are lawless. Wow, that's a, that's a stern warning for any preacher, pastor, prophet that has come in all times and ever performed a miracle, anyone who's ever prayed for somebody and then they were miraculous healing, we can look and say, you know what? The Lord, oh my, Lord is so good, so powerful that he used me to heal that person. And even if I'm giving all honor and power and glory to the Lord in that healing or in that miracle, if I go and I stand and I try to, to, to stand on my own two feet, and count and try to testify to my own goodness of what I had done in the name of the Lord, the Lord still has reserved the right to say that he never knew me. That is a warning to anyone who has ever seen miracles happen, that we or, or has, has even been, been present, or maybe you were the one that prayed when the miracle happened. But again, it never we, we can never boast on our on what the Lord has done because the Lord reserves the right to reject us if there is something, if we have committed sins, if we have committed iniquity, because that's what he said, depart from me, ye who practice lawlessness. Well, unfortunately, every one of us have practiced lawlessness at some point in time. We all have broken the Torah commandments. We all have sinned in some form or fashion, and that should always remind us and, 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 and warn us to make sure that we never believe that we've arrived or that we've done great things, because all power and glory goes to the Lord. This is a warning and connects directly, of course, to Moses as well. Because Moses, he's the one who lost his ticket to the promised land. He striked the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. And you can sit there and say, if anyone was supposed to go to the promised land, surely it would have been Moses. Nope, Moses didn't make it. Even Moses didn't make it. If Moses was not allowed to go to the promised land, then there is not some great work that you're going to do in this lifetime that is going to automatically allow, qualify you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately, the Lord is the ultimate judge. He is the one who will decide what will happen. What was the first thing that Moses learned? 
when Moses was called by God at the burning bush, and, and that really, the, truly, the story of the Exodus begins at that burning bush. What was the first real thing that the gods told Moses and that Moses learned? The name of the Lord. His memorial name, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, the one who, by his name that we, that we call upon, that we pray in that name, and we give honor and we give reverence to that name. It's very interesting that this all has to do with the name of God. When it says that somebody will use the excuse and say, I did wonders in your name. The thing is, is if we're staking claim to something that doesn't belong to us, then that is exactly what the Lord would consider to be lawless and to be sin, to take something that doesn't belong to us. I also like to liken this unto as well, um, anybody, if you've ever run across anybody in your walk or in your faith or in Bible studies that say that one particular name or one particular pronunciation is the only way by which we come to faith in God and that we go into the presence of God and enter into the promised land, this is the passage I like to go to whenever I'm dealing with somebody that says a name has to be pronounced a certain way, otherwise you're not saved. Because this is the, because of the specifics of this warning. Imagine if somebody has a specific pronunciation of the name of God that they believe is the only way you can pronounce the name to be saved. Well, the, they're the ones that are going to be, their entire ministry, their entire platform is based on that pronunciation of that name. And they're going to be the ones that are going to say to God, and they're going to say, we performed miracles in your name. We said it this way. We knew that these were the ones, and it was the way we pronounced it was the reason why the miracles happened and the great signs and the wonders happened. And what if they were wrong? What if the pronunciation was wrong? God is sitting there, and they're, they're barking some pronunciation at them, and God's like, that's not even my name, man. It's the same thing with you know, an individual. My, my name's Ephraim. I prefer the pronunciation of Ephraim if somebody's calling my name or saying my name. But if somebody once walked around and said that they knew me really well, yet they were saying that my name was Ephraim, which I've been called before, but somebody trying to pronounce it out you know, just right as they look at it <laughs> written down, and they're like, Ephraim, we know Ephraim, Ephraim Judah is a great, he's my good friend. And if I ever hear that guy saying that, it's like, that's not my name. That's not how I pronounce my name. That's not how I say my name. And in fact, it sounds like you're trying to say my name to give yourself honor by saying that you know me. And if I ever get a chance to talk to somebody who's doing that, I might turn to him and say, you don't know me. Stop telling people you know me because you don't know me. That's what the Lord will do at the end of the age. If you're uh, provoking people and, and stating that people have to say the name a certain way, if you're wrong, you're in trouble. If you're saying that's the name and, nobody, and, and, and everybody else that doesn't say it that way is wrong, you're the one who's taking his name in vain. Oh, by the way, that is lawlessness. That's breaking of the fourth commandment. And when the Messiah turns to you and says, depart from me who practice lawlessness because you took my name in vain, you tried to make it common, you tried to you know, lift up, exalt yourself with my name, that's the warning that I see when I read this passage as well. We need to call upon the name of the Lord. Whatever honor, uh, honoring way that you say the name, whether you say Lord, whether you say God, whether you say Hashem, whether you have a pronunciation of Jehovah, Yahweh, Yahuwah, whatever you might say, always when you talk about the name of the Lord, do it in an honoring and reverent way and don't try to use God's name to exalt yourself. 
God is the only one who is worthy of that exaltation, not us. And ultimately, as time has gone on, many people have been saved in this earth, speaking different languages, pronouncing the name different ways, the name of the Messiah said in different ways, whether you were saved by grace, through faith, by the name of Jesus, or Jesus, or Yeshua, or any other name, however it's been pronounced, there are many people that have been saved by the power of God and not by the pronunciation of a human tongue. It is God's power that gives us, that gives us our salvation. It's by reading, proclaiming the Word of God and a testimony in Him, and not just something that we can utter with our mouth, is that we, that but just a pronunciation of name is not what saves us. It's the power of God that saves us. We now have the parable and the teaching in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 7, talking about the man who built his house upon the rock as opposed to the sand. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears the sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall." Ultimately, this is one of those lessons that are like Sunday School 101 teaching children with a little song and with illustrations and coloring sheets of understanding that building something, uh, you're building a house upon a solid, firm foundation will strengthen and support one's house versus something that is weak and that when something comes and washes away the foundation, it will not stand. Ultimately, the parallel to building a house upon the rock is, of course, a teaching in a parallel upon the rock that is Yeshua, the chief cornerstone, the rock of our salvation. But the other thing that it teaches us for those who are messianic is that we base our faith on the foundation of the rock and the words of Mount Sinai and the commandments that were written upon tablets of stone. And upon that rock is the foundation of everything that we believe. If you reject the rock of Mount Sinai and the mountain of the Lord that by his commandments that were given, and you simply try to build your spiritual house without that foundation, then your faith may be shattered one day. When inevitably the rains come, when inevitably floods come, if you do not have the foundation of what you believe, straight firming up the foundation, the rock of our salvation, the, the parallel between the teachings of Torah and what came from Mount Sinai and the teachings of Yeshua, the rock of our salvation, those two things must be one and the same in our faith and what we believe. If you can combine those two things and balance those things in your spiritual walk, then you will have a faith that is unshakable. You will understand all the books of the Bible rather than picking and choosing and separating one versus the other or the Old Testament and the New and dividing the Word of God. Instead, we must have the whole Word of God as the basis of the foundation of our faith. Inevitably, things will come that will shake your faith, that will try to compromise what you believe. And ultimately, we need to know what we believe. We need to be the people that read the Word, that know the Word, that have taken it to heart, and that the commandments of God are written on the tablets of our heart and not just on a set of stone that you bought from a Christian bookstore that you hang on your wall, but that you have truly taken it to heart 
to know what these words are, what the purpose of the Torah is, and what the power of the testimony of Yeshua can be to you. The very last verse of Matthew chapter 7 is the response of the people after hearing Yeshua's teaching. I've loved this verse. It's actually one of my favorite verses, honestly. Matthew 7, 28. And so it was when Yeshua had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes are the people that just copy things. They just do it because, and it's just systematic of, this is what it says, I'm going to copy it, I'm just going to do exactly what it says. Yeshua didn't teach like that. Yeshua didn't just teach, it didn't just read the words. But he spoke with them as one having authority, power, control, he, as, a, as the master, as a leader, as a teacher. The, what's the root word of authority? Author. He taught the Torah on the Sermon of the Mount as if he was the author of the words. That's because he was. Yeshua was the lawgiver. Yeshua was the one that was on Mount Sinai teaching the commandments to Moses, speaking from the burning bush. Yeshua was there because Yeshua and God are one and the same. I and the Father are one. And he was there. And so when we look at the teachings of Yeshua through the gospel, through any teaching that comes out of the New Testament, we must remember he is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the author of creation. He is the author of the commandments of God and the law of Moses. We might call it the law of Moses, but ultimately it's the law of Yeshua. He was the one who taught it. He was the one who was speaking. And he is the one that when we follow him in his testimony, and when he said, if you love me, obey my commandments, plural, not just one love, but all of the commandments that he gave from the rock of Mount Sinai. Yeshua is the author of the Torah, the author of the law of Moses. And if we love Yeshua, if we have a testimony of believing in him, then we should obey his words, obey his commandments by studying the Torah, taking the words and the commandments to heart, and so that we might live by them, as the Torah says. These commandments are not the commandments of death. They're the commandments of life. And by these words, we shall live by them. That's how we need to look at Torah. That's how we need to read the Torah, study the Torah. And that is why we at Line Line Ministries are committed to the teaching of Torah each and every week, each and every year, as we continue to serve the Lord and minister to the brethren. So thank you. Shabbat Shalom. Strength, strength. Let us be strengthened as we close out the book of the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy. And we thank you for being a part of this year's Torah cycle and pray that you continue to be blessed, strengthened, and encouraged each and every week where Moses is to be taught in the synagogues each and every week for the edification of not only the Jewish people, but for all the Gentiles and for all the people in all the families of the earth to be blessed to hear the word of God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, Lord, for the end of this Torah cycle. We thank you, Lord, for all of the teachings in your word. As I say every single week, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for choosing us from among all peoples. We thank you, Lord, for the time and the, the, the era that we live in, Lord, that our word can be, can be printed and bound and be so very near to us that we, we can read it each and every day. We can reach it, read it multiple times a day, Father. We can keep it with us on our, bed, on our uh, bedside table or on our coffee table. 
or in our briefcase, everywhere that we go, we can take the Word of God with us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, strengthen us, Lord, to open the Word anytime we're in need, anytime in times of peace as well, Father, that we would take your Word to heart. May it be written upon our hearts. Father, may it go through the gates of our eyes and the gates of our ears, and may it penetrate our heart and soul so that your covenant and your Word might be written upon our innermost being. May everything that we do be honoring to you, honoring to you, our King, our Priest, our Messiah, our Savior, the one who gives us atonement, the one who redeems us, the one who has delivered us from slavery and sin and death and has granted us eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for these amazing gifts. And Father, may we be repay these things back to you. And may our covenant be strong and be firm with you in everything we do, everything we say. And Father, may you just lift us up, cause us to walk uprightly before you. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you for everything that you do in our lives and everything that you will do in the future. We give you all honor, glory, and praise in this place. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Shabbat shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.